Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today's guests are both drawing on their family histories for creative works. Comedian, playwright and author Michael Veach, first introduced to many through his roles on the Degeneration and Full Frontal, is a prolific author of books about Australian history. His latest, Hellship, uncovers the grim tale of the Ticonderoga, which sailed from Liverpool to Portsea in 1852, a journey that would ultimately see a quarter of the 800 passengers die of typhus, tended tirelessly by the ship's assistant surgeon, Veach's own great-great-grandfather. Hellship, The Journey of the Ticonderoga is now a book, a play and also an album. And Michael Veach will be joining me later in the hour to discuss this hellish tale and how he pieced together the story and the family history behind it. But first, a very different approach to his own migrant story. Author Moreno Giovanoni will join me to discuss his book, The Fireflies of Autumn, interwoven folkloric tales from the fictional town of San Ginese. This collection weaves superstition, family lore and diaspora, creating a compelling portrait of a small village where lives are intertwined even when when they stretch to the other side of the world. Uh, Moreno Giovanoni will join me soon to discuss this collection and the craft behind it. Three, triple, R. You're tuned to 3RRR, the show is Backstory. I'm your host, Mel Cranenberg. Now imagine a small rural town somewhere in Tuscany where people leave sometimes for many years at a time but remain a part of the local folklore, sometimes returning to pick up where they left off, sometimes disappearing for good, but always the stories remain. Stories of betrayal, revenge, abandonment, famine, murder and the rich intergenerational family life. This is all woven into the fabric of Moreno Giovanoni's compelling book, The Fireflies of Autumn. It's set in the fictional town of San Genese, but its characters and their stories form a very folkloric arc that draws the reader in and makes them feel very much a part of this town and its stories. Uh, Moreno joins me now to discuss the book and the craft behind it. Moreno Giovanoni, welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Mel. Now, this is uh, this is quite an interesting book in terms of both, I think, the structure of how it's written mm. uh, and the tales that it kind of weaves. I would love you to sort of set the book up a little bit for those that are listening in terms of how you see it. Okay. Um, for me, I mean, I set out to do a couple of things. I wanted to record um, what life was like in this village because this is a village that I knew. So I wanted to tell, and I, I didn't think I could uh, try to write it as a novel because it wasn't what came naturally to me. What came naturally to me was I knew the people in this village who are all dead now. Um, I knew the people. I had lived there and got to know them. Um, I knew the houses. I so I knew the street. There's only one street, really, in where most of the action happens. Um so, and I started thinking I will cover from the early 1900s right through at least to the 70s, which is when I was living there in the early 70s, 
and later on another period where I went back for I went back for many visits, but I I, take, I took one visit in particular. So I wanted to cover the span of the 20th century almost, um, with uh, most of the action happening up until, say, the 1950s, with a little bit after that. Um, and I wanted to record what life was like. This is an agricultural society still, even when I knew it. Um, Industrialisation had already come to Italy, uh, but it hadn't quite... Com- you know, uh, caught the village in its grasp yet. When I was there, uh, people were still working as peasant farmers. Um, and the other thing I wanted to do was also uh, discuss the dislocation that uh, happens to migrants when they do leave or they think of leaving and then they don't and what happens when they come back and they think they're coming back to the same place and they're not. You know, things change, they change... Um, so those two things I wanted to cover and the life of a village. So it's, for me, it's, a, it's very much a record of what life was like. There's a bit of... Um, uh, I like to think of it as all true because um, a lot of these characters mm-hmm. are based on people who really existed. I think in all but one case, I used their real names. Um, and they've all got a connection to things that really happened things that my father told me about because he was a little boy in the 1930s Um, and my mum as well through the period of the Second World War. She remembered the Second World War um, and, uh, you know, based on what they told me, very much so. What I love about Mm. this uh, and the way you've constructed the book is that very much, um, I guess, the the kind of truthful nature or the apocryphal nature of some of these tales ceases to matter because Mm. the truth of the humanity is really kind of, you know, woven into it. And in a sense, isn't that always the tales that are told to us by our families? We can't go and check them necessarily. In some cases we can, and I will have a a guest on later in the show that has done that very thing. Mm. But sometimes, you know, this is what you know, forms, helps to form who we are and the narrative of a place. Uh, and that's what you've really captured here in this really compelling way. Mm. Uh, you introduced the book as though it has been told uh, by a, the opening character, uh, Hugo, who, um, you know, is talking to the reader mm. through the medium of this book. Um, yep. Hugo, I imagine, is very much uh, based on your father. If he, not, is, yes. he, he is your father in a sure. sense. Yep. Um, but he he introduces an idea that I think is really like, like quite fascinating and goes to the complexity uh, behind some of these stories that that may that seem kind of deceptively simply told. I think, and that is uh, when he first introduces uh, the fact that he left this village. Uh, he says, you know, it's it's something he regrets that actually leaving is something he regrets. But once you get into the life of the village, you sort of feel as though. There was very little option. Uh, there were very little option uh, in terms of uh, what people could do. Um, you know, famine and poverty was very much a part of this life. Although there's a there's a certain richness, a cultural richness that that you get in terms of uh, people kind of really knowing everyone's histories and having a sense yep. of their place mm-hmm. being there, mm-hmm. which is incredibly compelling. Um, you can really see why there is such a huge percentage of that town that end up leaving and coming back so so i really want to talk let, let's talk about some of the stories that are woven into it uh one sure. of the most affecting stories for me and i'm sure many others mm-hmm. who read this book is uh you know isn't is the opening uh story the Percher, the percheron uh it 
literally made me cry. (laughs) I'm sure it would others. Um, And to be clear, these are all very short stories. Um, They're, you know, just a few pages long. Mm -hmm. They're told in an extremely accessible way, uh, but they really do, you know, get under your skin in uh, a way many other books I really find don't. (laughs) Uh, Talk to me about this story. Okay. Um, This story um, was born out of a remark that my dad made um, many years ago. He was telling me about his uh, father, Vitale, who'd gone to America, to California, to uh, make some money, pay off some uh, debts and, you know, basically just bring back some money to the, uh, to the village. Um, and he was working with horses in the forest. Uh, they were cutting trees down and he said, he, you know, my dad lost his temper and hit a horse with a branch and took out his eye. And that was it, basically. That was what my dad told me. And I thought about that and I thought, wow, that's a terrible thing to happen. Because I'd known this man. I had known my grandfather, Vitale, and he didn't seem like that at all. Um, And at the same time, I'd been thinking of writing... uh, uh, about the, our family in the village in Italy. So I'd started researching. I found ship's records. I found the record that showed Vitale arriving in New York. And I actually were, I was in New York on holidays and I checked out the uh, large assembly hall where migrants arrived and were sorted out. Um, and I saw the stairs down which he would have gone to the train station on the New Jersey side to catch a train um, to go to California because that's where he went. So there was all this historical research that I'd done, the other bits that my father had told me, and I started to put all these together. And because this, to me, was a story about um, not so much greed but the desire to make money and to leave poverty behind and so on, I thought to myself, how ironic, in a sense, that you set out to achieve that and then you end up doing this awful thing Mm. that preys on you for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, And which is something that, you know, in a lot of the stories about migrants setting off to... uh, uh, with with some kind of ambition to better themselves, to better their lives, it doesn't always quite work out like that. And this seemed to me, this is what human beings do, though. They set off with these grand ideas and ambitions and then fall short somehow. It was such a, it was kind of, I mean, it was an incredibly shocking mm. story to mm. open mm. with in many ways uh, and one that I think really captured that complexity straight away, mm. which is, you know, exactly as you describe it, that um, within that act, you know, yep. lies a kind of world of frustration and pain yep. Um, yep. that, you know, I think in, in other ways, because the stories are told in this quite, uh, you know, in, in quite a sort of folkloric way, you yep. know, in that sort of retelling of a story rather yep. Than, yep. than trying to kind of, you know, kind of clarify the, the emotion sure. um, mm-hmm. that actually... Mm-hmm you know, it really kind of makes it so much more stark. I do want to talk about, uh, you know, how you've told these tales. Mm. And Mm. there, you know, are so many in here and they they move through time. So some of them are, you know, back in the 1800s, some, you know, are in more modern times. All of them have a feel that is slightly out of time. And I think this is a lot to do with how you've chosen to 
tell them or retell them. Uh, Talk to me about the craft behind this because uh, very much we were having a little bit of an off-air discussion about this and I have certainly been guilty as Mm -hmm. a a teacher of non-fiction of driving into my students the old adage of writing teachers, which is show, don't tell, um, which is, you know, allegedly, you know, how you put things in concrete terms where you use metaphor and you use an image to kind of create an idea in someone's mind. A lot of these stories are told in a more classical form, which is a a telling of a tale where all of the detail is laid out for you. Uh, But, you know, it's, it's kind of... The way it works is is really quite stunning. So talk to me about your choices here. Sure. Um, Look, I was actually doing a a writing course when I decided I was going to write a book rather than take up golf um, because I'd got to the age where a lot of men do start playing golf. Uh, I thought, no, I'll write a book. And uh, I enrolled for a a master's in uh, creative writing at RMIT and all the teachers were telling us, you've got to show, don't tell. And we talked about this among ourselves, students and, you know, other people. And, you know, I, I got the feeling, okay, this is something that's happened. Uh, you're probably aware of this yourself then. <laughs> that It's happened since the onset, the coming of the cinema, you know, 120 years ago, um, where people want to see things as if they're... Uh, and they don't want to be told them. So if you're going to uh, say... Uh, Vitale was angry, you wouldn't say that. You would say, Vitale picked a brick up and threw it through the window and broke the glass, you know. Um, And I would say to myself, why can't I say that he's angry? (laughs) Or if there's a beautiful girl in the village, I'd say, she was the most beautiful girl in San Ginese. And people would pick me up in the workshopping we were doing and say, you can't just say that. What does it mean to say she was the most beautiful girl in the village? And I think it just means that. You know, that's what it means, (laughs) that she was beautiful. Um, Instead of describing her, you know, physically or, you know, something. Um, So, look, it really annoyed me. And at one stage I even considered not writing it if I were going to have to change the way I was writing it I I just wasn't interested you know Mm. I just wasn't interested in writing it it was coming out the way it was I mean in a sense it was an instinctive kind of writing that I did Um, the point of view was more or less that of an omniscient benevolent slightly um, cynical but always affectionate God. This is how I saw it, looking down on the village and on all the people in it, people with their weaknesses and their nastiness and, and so on, and not not casting judgment, though. I mean, I think people have told me that it, there's a lot of love and affection that comes through uh, out of the book as they read it. They can tell that the author, you know, loves the place. And look, if that's how people feel, that's good, because that, that is how I feel about the place and the characters. But, um, you know, I – look, I did read – before starting to write it, and I had no idea it was going to be like this, I did read all of Hans Christian Andersen's uh, tales. I read them. Um, not that I immediately then started reading the book, but that was, you know, something I really got into. And also Anton Chekhov's stories. With Chekhov, you know, and even – you know, uh, Hans Christian Andersen, I'm thinking, how can you write stories that people are still reading 150 years mm. later? How do you do that? Because you know, that's, that's what I was interested in. If possible, I wanted to write something that people would find interesting, not just now, the publication year, but maybe next year, the year after. Who knows, you know? Um, so I, I did, in a sense, what came naturally. Um, I, I had my father's voice in one ear, uh, my mum's a little bit as well, my own experience of the place, but then 
this perspective which was from above. Mm. It was in a perspective from above and it was it was like God looking down and observing the behaviour of his or her creatures, you know, the, the, the human beings that he or she had created, basically. Now, if you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Moreno Giovanoni about his really quite wonderful collection, The Fireflies of Autumn uh, and Other Tales of San Genese, which is uh, out now and such a lovely collection of, of stories, although really it does form one single kind of tale, I guess, when it comes down to it. Um, we were talking about, uh, you know, how you've kind of used this more omniscient voice um, and I think that it works so beautifully because it does harken back to an old style of yeah. storytelling. In some ways, I think that, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, I guess resurgence of, uh, of oral storytelling through the kind of podcast era that we're now in, uh, you know, the rebirth of radio, I feel like, uh, you know, that really is kind of bringing back this storytelling tradition that people really connect with. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like that is one of the real strengths of this book, that you feel like you're being directly told a story. The other element I think that really I find quite compelling is that these stories much, you know, feel real to life in the sense that they don't end on a neat ending. They don't have a neat narrative construct. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unlike Grimm's fairy tales, they don't even have necessarily a hidden uh, message. Although Grimm's fairy tales' messages are a bit horrible. That's right. You know, don't be bad to your parents or you'll get your head chopped up and your eyes gouged out or similar. Um, But I think here there are some some incredible tales of just casual human cruelty Mm -hmm. and, you know, some, some really moving tales of you know, of great sacrifice as well. Both are really quite powerfully contained in in one of your stories and it's a it's kind of a, a dreadful title in a way, but because of the sentiment of the mm. stories within mm. it and it was and it's called The Imbeciles and the Fig Tree or And They Lived Happy and Content. Mm. Uh, it is probably again another of the most heartbreaking stories in this collection, all the more so because of the, the kind of laconic voice through which it's told, mm-hmm. the employment of mm-hmm. the kind of language of the time yep. uh, that would have been used. Talk to me about this particular okay. story. Uh, first of all, look, the, in the title is uh, something that uh, I have done here and there. I mean, I didn't set out to do it all the time, but the um, And They Lived Happy and Content is actually a, it's a literal translation of the way that you say in Italian, and they lived happily ever after. E vissero felici e contenti. That's that's the Italian, and this is a literal translation of that. Um, and it's it's look, it's meant to be ironic, you know, because they they don't really live happy At and all. content. No. Um, and the um, the the this look, the whole story is based on you know, again an example of two neighbours that my dad had over, who lived across the road, um, and uh, I. You know, I, I listened to what he was telling me about them. They were so poor. Their parents, uh, there were these two girls and both of them were actually intellectually disabled um, and they lived with their aunt because their mother and father had left, had gone to America and hadn't come back. Um, and so there was speculation in the village, why didn't they come back? You know, maybe because they just didn't want to live a life with these these two girls, the, 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 the sacrifice of, you know, having the, the burden of having these two girls. Um, whereas the, the aunt, 
you know, she shouldered this uh, responsibility and saw it through. Um, the a, a lot of the details are straight out of the village. I mean, I can picture the uh, the the place, uh, the house. The there's a row of abandoned houses where they lived, and they actually lived next to Tommaso the killer. Um, he also lived in that row of houses. Um, I think there's a picture of uh, those houses uh, in the book. Um, and, you know, I wanted... Look, I set out to write... I wanted to write something totally devastating. Uh, the, and the last uh, paragraph especially, I wanted to make it like a slow-motion car crash. I remember thinking this mm. at the time. I just want to make this a slow-motion car crash where everything it just falls apart and everything comes together in a you know slow kind of uh, disaster it's an utterly thing, utterly you know. heartbreaking mm. piece which mm. i feel like again you know even just you know the superstition within the village yeah. the lack yeah. of understanding of particular elements sure. but yep. even so the humanity of these young girls comes through um, yep. in this incredibly heartbreaking way mm. and, and mm. that's something you've done incredibly well throughout the book where you've you know a modern audience um, with more you know knowledge about medicine and um, and sure. things of that nature yep. would yep. truly understand, you know, yep. when depression is being described or, or yes. other elements here. Yep. Um, there are a lot of incredibly moving elements in this book. There are mm. also some some really beautiful, um, much happier tales, I should say, <laughs> as well. Um, what really remains throughout this is this sense mm. that the community is just always interconnected, yep. that regardless of whether people love or hate one another yes. or disregard them yep. on a, a personal level, they yes. very much are all a part of each other's stories, yes. which yep. I find yep. compelling. Yep. Um, I would love to talk to you a lot more about this, but I, I do want to leave uh, to, to just discuss one more uh, mm. thing, which is you work with language very specifically. You're, yep. you're a translator. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of your kind of, you know, work as a translator kind of helped you st- sort of interpret these stories that came okay. from your family. Look, I mean, I've, I've thought about this as well. And the, the, f- the most fundamental thing is that um, I, when I was a boy, say when I was 12 years old, I insisted that my dad buy me a typewriter. He bought me a typewriter. Uh, I wanted to write stories. I ended up not writing stories. It was too hard. I mean, it was easier to get a job, work for myself, uh, earn money, get a mortgage and do, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, But I was, I became a translator, which I always thought was a kind of deviant behaviour for a writer. To, To be able to sit and write other people's words from, you know, one language into another. It seemed to me like this is a perversion of sorts. That that was one thing I always had in the back of my mind, uh, and that one day I might go back and do the real thing uh, and actually write a book. Um, now, the other thing I decided I wanted to write in a language that wasn't very elegant. Sometimes it's the way that some... Um, relatively poor translations not terrible translations uh, are written in English this was the English that I aimed for Um, so much so that uh, uh, you know I I didn't want to write it it's not elegant English I don't think uh, deliberately so Um, I remember when we were doing the copy editing I was uh, saying to the uh, the publisher that I didn't want to refine it or make it elegant more elegant than it was Um, if there were what seemed to be like inappropriate repetitions, I mean, that was deliberate. If there was an unusual word, then that was deliberate. Like I, I think I used the word uh, amicable instead of friendly. 
friendly neighbour. I call him an amicable neighbour, which mm. is an unusual way of describing a neighbour. You'd say friendly in modern English. Um, and I'd look for the odd word like cave dwelling. I, I, I use the word cavernicolous, for instance, which, uh, you know, it came to me in Italian. I looked it up in English. It exists in English too, so I used that. Um, and I even made up a word uh, for one of the pieces uh, there's, in Italian you have the word anagrafe or anagrafico, which sounds as if it could be English, anagraphical. Of course, that's, that sounds English, but it's not. I mean, it's not a word in English. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in Italian, it's the civil registrar. It's the registry office where you, all your details are recorded, d- birth, date of birth, place of birth, and so on, parents, all those kinds of things. So I just made up a word. Um, so I felt I was always playing with the language simply because that's what I do for a living and I didn't want it to be too elegant, too smooth, too modern sounding. I mean, I, don't, I deliberately didn't want to write it like Tim Winton, not that I could, or Helen Garner who write beautiful, clean, elegant prose. Um, you know, I wanted to write something that sounded a little bit just off um, just a little bit uh, wacky, just you know, just a tiny little bit, uh, not modern English. That was uh, you know that was what I was trying to do. And look, I think it's it's it it's worked out because a lot of people say that to me that it's it sounds like um, oh, some, someone referred to it. The, one of the very first reviews uh, said it was it sounded like top notch European literature. Now I thought to myself, what does European mean? <laughs> You know, it's written in English, for heaven's yeah. sake. And yet I could understand what she meant, you know, when she says European literature. Well, you've certainly, uh, and I would say very strongly, the mm. voice here is, is a very much a character, as it, I'm yep. sure was intended to be, and that that has come across. Um, I have focused on some, some rather heart-wrenching okay. Tales. I do warn people if they're, you know, if they have certain sensitivities, there are elements in yep, here yep. Uh, to be aware of, um, as we have just discussed. Mm. Uh, but I do want to thank you for this book. It is utterly moving and um, and a, a really quite uh, wonderfully woven collection. Uh, Moreno Gimanoni, thank you so much for joining us here on thank Backstory. Thank you, Mel. Thank you. Uh, so you're listening to Backstory on Three Triple R. And I've just been speaking with Moreno Giovannoni about his wonderful book, The Fireflies of Autumn. Stay with us uh, after this. We'll be talking to author and comedian Michael Veach about his amazing new book, uh, which is also a play and a also an album. There's all sorts of things going on. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to 3RRR. The show is Backstory. Now, the year is 1852 and William and Patrick, two lime burners, are taking a break from their hot work as a large black sailing ship makes its way into harbour. But something is wrong. And uh, the ship looks messy and neglected. And most chilling of all is flying the dreaded yellow jack, a flag signifying some kind of plague that this ship has uh, got on board. That ship was the Ticonderoga, and by the time its journey was fully done, a full quarter of its 800 passengers would be dead from typhus, a hundred before they even reached the port. Offering what help and comfort he could to the sick and dying was James William Henry Veach. 
The assistant ship's surgeon would carry the story with him to the colony he'd landed in and generations later his great-great-grandson, comedian and playwright and author Michael Veach would dig up the past to find out what happened on that very grim voyage. Joining me now is that very man, Michael Veach, well known to many for his roles on The Degeneration and Full Frontal. Uh, he's also a prolific author of gripping and accessibly written Australian histories and now one that has a very personal angle. Michael Veach, welcome to Backstory. Hi, lovely to be here, Mel. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank Goodness you. Me. We've had some, um, some very interesting interesting uh, studio goings on here uh, like uh, with our microphones I think can you yeah, y- you're all I good can, I can I can hear your dulcet tones absolutely lovely lovely um so so this book is quite a personal one for you really it's it's yeah. a harrowing tale uh and one that I mean genuinely shocking being trapped aboard a ship uh yeah. that you know where people are dying on mass um is really the story that um that your great grand great great grandfather yes. rather had to tell but the way you've retold it is quite extraordinary and michael veach those that only know you in your comedic and you know i guess your roles on stage as well really may not realize just how how great a histo- historical writer you really are i was going to call you a historian but do you consider yourself no 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 I'm, I'm i i don't consider myself an historian uh, i consider myself a writer and a lover of stories and with an interest in history and i've always had a fascination for historical stories and i like reading them and i like telling them and this one happens to have sort of uh, uh, be this wonderful Venn diagram of a very gripping story in itself, but also a very personal one. The, and it, it's all um, what you said about the um, voyage is true, but and it's but it's not just a personal story for me. It was actually the first really really big story in the colony of Victoria's history because Victoria had only been a colony for about a year before it wasn't even a proper colony it was what they called a crown colony and our first governor Latrobe wasn't even a proper governor he had little training wheels on he was called (laughs) lieutenant governor and the strings were being kind of pulled from Sydney so when this ship arrived and it was an emigrant vessel um, one of four really big ones that they'd chosen to bring mainly the Scots out because there were so many Scots over there that were desperate and had been cleared from their traditional lands and they all wanted to come here and so the government said oh right, well we'll try and clear this backlog just put them in these really big bloody ships big american clippers that had only just been invented but with very little understanding of hygiene and the 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 uh, pathology of disease typhus broke out on board this one in particular all four of the big ships of those year and they were grouped into what real historians call the plague ships of 1852, but Ticonderoga was the last one and by far the most deadly. Um, no, nobody understood that typhus was transmitted by human lice at, the, at that stage and everybody had lice back then. Even the, as, uh, 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 as a historian once told me, you've got to remember that back in those days, even the rich people stank. <laughs> yeah. And people had all sorts of... Before the advent of cheap soap and running water and hygiene, people had all sorts of bugs and things that we would find completely intolerable. So um, 
And also not to be gross, it was kind of like a, you know, passed on by other human contact, wasn't it? A very well? close contact. It was all, mm. Typhus was also known as like um, barrack disease and, and uh, it, was, it was obviously called sh- ship's disease, um, hospital disease, or where people were bunched up in close mm. quarters because the, 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 the creatures moved from one victim to another and bit them and infected them with this particular bacteria. So, but nobody knew that at the time and people wouldn't discover that for another, another 60 odd years. Um, it was actually during World War One, but so and that they all thought diseases were airborne, and so they had all these elaborate things to clear the air in these ships. But they didn't actually, and, and they thought they were doing the, you know, hygiene-wise, they thought they were doing the right thing, but they had no idea how to actually fight something like typhus. So, my great great grandfather who actually came from a pretty distinguished line of naval surgeons. His dad, my great 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 grandfather was a big wig. He was like a really kind of up there. I mean, oh God, now we used to actually own a house in the West End of London. Can you believe it? Not for many uh, years. Why now. did they let that go? Ah, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so James was his eldest son um, and had graduated and this was his first voyage at sea and the, the, the first of many. And he uh, struck with this disaster. But th- there is a happy romantic story attached to it as well because one of the few passengers who came forward to help him was a young Scottish female educated um, immigrant uh, Annie Morrison from the Isle of Mull and she was coming out here to get work as a governess or something like that and she helped him enormously on the voyage and was very very brave and very very hard working and they ended up getting married and she became my great great grandmother so there is a kind of a there's a love story there's a love story at the end thank goodness and they were married quite soon after their um, arrival into Melbourne but the, the, but but the story also involves the quarantine station. I don't know people who've been down to, um, you know, Port Sin, Sorrento and Port Nepean Way. When you keep going further, you get into what was the old army barracks, uh, army officer training school. But before that, it was the quarantine station. Our original quarantine station, bizarrely enough, was in Elwood and they had to move it because Melbourne was encroaching too close to it. So they moved it down... At the time the Ticonderoga came in, they decided to have one down there and suddenly the ship turns up. Nothing had been built, but they said, well, we're actually thinking of doing a quarantine station there, so why don't you go over there and get all your people off onto this beach? Because 100 had, all, 100 had died already. 100 had been buried at sea very, very rudimentarily because all the sailcloth ran out and it was really grim. And then when they pull into Port Phillip Bay, the pilot said, you ain't going anywhere, you're not going up to Melbourne because there will be a panic if your diseased ship comes up there with typhus. So go over there, offload all your people, and for six weeks there was this makeshift hospital happening on the beach at Point mm. Nepean, which then evolved into the quarantine station that lasted 100 or so years. And... Um, that's when it became a really big story in Melbourne, and this is the <clears throat> one. What I to, to what I started rambling on at at the, the, at the beginning of this current rave, Mel, was that it's not only a personal story, but it was a really headline story in its day. They printed extra copies of the papers to report on news of the ship. Uh, it was considered a real test for the early colonial government, and if you think the letters to the editor and the editorials in the papers now are vicious to the government you should read them back in 1852 they are visceral and of course everybody who was literate 
was really literate back then in, in that they were could write beautifully. And the sarcasm and the vitriol directed towards the perceived incompetence of the government is just amazing to read. If you've uh, just joined us, you're listening to 3 The show is Backstory and uh, I'm Mel Cranenberg, your host, and I'm talking to the very familiar tones of uh, Michael... <laughs> Beach, uh, who is actually here to discuss yet another history book that he has written. Um, Michael Beach is a prolific writer of history books as well as a comedian and playwright and performer. Oh, I think the comedian days are a bit behind me, Mel, well, to be honest. You, you know, know what? I think a bit of a young a... man's game now, I think, don't you think? You <laughs> weren't born when, when I was doing most of my comedy. It's very generous of you to say so, but I very much was born. Um, I Look, I, I feel it's it's important to say, I suppose, because that is, is I, I think, the perception um, that some people that, that know you well and love you obviously oh. have of you as a, a familiar voice. But, but I do you really want to talk about you as a as a writer of history because actually you write such an accessible uh, form of history uh, because you actually you know you go there you do the research and then you find the real stories <laughs> so characters there are resurrected and and I opened uh, this interview by actually very heavily uh, passing um, one of your opening chapters uh, to the book that we're discussing now which is Hellship uh, the journey of the Ticonderoga which was uh, you know your what we've been describing this incredibly uh-huh. harrowing journey of a, of a ship affected by typhus uh, so in it, you manage to kind of find these, you know, these characters that are real characters yeah. um, and then bring them to life to kind of really give people a sense of what that experience was like rather than reciting dry facts and figures. Tell me, how did you do that? How do you do that kind of amazing alchemy out of old <laughs> documents? Oh, you're very kind. I really take that as a lovely compliment. Thank you, Mel. Um, I, I Look, I, I think I come from... I'm a product of two journalists, my dad and mum, both met and married on newspapers, and my father used to always say, write in pictures, write in pictures, writing is a visual medium, it was one of his phrases, which which I've always struck as really nice, and he also taught me, if you're writing a paragraph, put a picture in the first, don't wait till the third line until there is something that the reader's mind can envisage. And it's always stuck with me. And a lot of the trouble with historical writing is it is does get very dry. And history is not dry. Mm. And, you know, history shouldn't be dry. History is people. History is us. It was. It's our forebears. It's our, you know, people we knew, people we didn't know, living lives. Um, and I, I guess, Mal, I just like to write the stuff that I like to read. And uh, there wasn't a lot to go on. In this story, as I said, it well, sorry the rejoinder that was even though it was a big story in its day, it then got very, very quickly forgotten about, completely forgotten about. Hence, hence why there hasn't been a book, or hardly any books. There's one little um, <clears throat> privately published book which is excellent, and I have to uh, um, um, mention Mary Krutoff, who's another descendant of the people of the Ticonderoga, some of the survivors, and she about um, in the early nineties wrote a really nice. Uh, kind of very factual book called Fever Beach, privately published. and the, But that, hers and mine, and we're both descendants of people from this boat, is the only thing that's been written about it. And there wasn't a lot to go on. I mean, I had to go into sort of uh, uh, letters um, 
the odd articles that have popped up in newspapers at the the time. There's a great <laughs> um, one of the most interesting stories uh, came out from um, one of the um, uh, people that were on the beach during this six-week recovery period leading up to Christmas 1852 was the McRae family who'd come out from Scotland, a big family. Half of them had died, literally. The eldest boy was a Christopher McRae, 17 years old. He'd lost his mother and two siblings already and he decided, I can't bear this beach anymore, and he walked and he decided, I'm bugger it, I'm going to get out of here. And all he had was a an address of his late mother's cousin in Coburg, right near, very close where we are. And he walked. He walked the entire distance up the beach in 1852, um, uh, which is a remarkable story just in itself. But he lived into his 90s, so he lived well into the 20th century, and only in the very last years of his life he started talking about it. And thank goodness there are some articles written in the Argus of during World War One about what the voyage was like, but not many more. And you, you look, you, you, you get back to your original, you have to extrapolate a bit. You, you have to put your, your mind in what it was like for these people. You sort of work out, well... What would it have been like on that mm. beach? What would it have been like on that ship? You sort of, you just fill in the blanks, I guess, sometimes, not taking too much historical licence ever because that because it isn't fiction. But to try to put yourself in those shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. have done a remarkable amount with this story so far, <laughs> I have to say. Um, there is a one-man show that you're doing. Yeah. I, I believe uh, that's been touring for a little while yeah, now. Yeah, I've been t- touring for a couple of months where I basically, uh, and that's called, that's the Hellship Stage Show, and uh, we've been touring that for really, it's been a really great experience doing that because I've met so many descendants of the ship plus some of my cousins that are also descended from uh, this Veach character my great grandfather and um, that's been really good so we've we've been touring and we're, we're doing a couple more shows down at the quarantine station where it all happened mm-hmm. in a hall there on the November 17 which should be really good we're, we're just getting that organised at, at the moment that's going to be really moving <laughs> Yeah, you should definitely get along to, to see that if people are interested in some of the content we've covered or pick up a copy of Hellship which is available widely at the moment yeah. um, I also, look I, I feel like this is such a fascinating tale because actually so many people, uh, you know, before we had more idea of the mechanism of disease really did die from diseases and from these kind of vast, uh, you know, plagues, I guess, as they were yeah. described. Um, yeah, yeah. This particular incident really did change the nature of how people arrived in yes. in this country. Uh, do you want to touch on that just a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, uh, as I said what they did in the 1850s, because there was this there, there was this collision of events both in Australia and in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, you had a hundred years of what they called the Highland Clearances. One of the great tragic stories of human forced diaspora, in that the Scots, in the, the Highland Scots, I should say, were basically kicked off their land. To be honest, uh, I think the fact that there's an adaptation of the book Outlander means it's that all a lot about of people... Outlander. Yeah, yes. it's all well. People this is a bit earlier. Yeah, with it. well, well, Outlander uh, 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 deals around the time of the Great Rebellion, the doom kind of really kind of stupid attempt that the that the 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 Stuarts had to to force their people back on the throne it was always going to be a failure and then the bloody English came back over the and and as we know Outlander they clobbered them (laughs) 
the Highland dress was outlawed, their language was outlawed, so they're in terrible straits. Then what happened is the Industrial Revolution happened and suddenly all these outlander lands that were just these sort of homes, the glens of the old Scots of the clans, they realised that, oh, hang on, we need wool because we've invented all these bloody great huge looms to fuel the Industrial Revolution. Uh, We can take all the wool from Australia, but we need more wool. Why don't you kick all these old beggars and miscreants and wild people out, being the Highlanders, and put sheep on her. And sheep on them. Of course, they didn't own the land. It was all loaned by people down south. So they did. So these people were cleared off their lands, often very forcefully, had nowhere to go. They went to Canada and they went to here. Ironically, here, we were desperate for people. Ironically, further, to, to cut the wool off sheep's backs. So... And then the gold rush happened. So all this, we had a labour shortage anyway, particularly a female shortage. There are no women here to make babies. And suddenly the, British, the English realised we, we, we have an excess here and a shortfall here. Let's get these people to Australia as quick as we can. What do we do? Hide big boats, that the size of which we've never even contemplated from America mm. being the clippers. And they fill them full of eight. Tuckanaroga had eight hundred men, women and children on board in virtual tiny little shelves. The hygiene would have been, even on a good voyage, one of these emigrant vessels, even a good voyage would have been to us, Mal, absolutely unbearable. And this was not a good voyage. The stink, you can imagine, of human beings not able to wash, babies, people being sick and then typhus which has its own ghastly stench and the stench of oh, look it, it i've haven't actually gone too much into the book into the actual disgusting nature of what this would have been like but it would have been unbearable unbearable indeed um and you describe uh the everything surrounding it so beautifully as well that I think it is very much worth delving into. Actually a very fast read um, because <laughs> you've, you've explained... Is that good? I hope it, that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great because uh, you've, you've explained it so beautifully. But I do want to just sidestep from that and mm-hmm. we are quickly running out of time, unfortunately. I, I would love you to mention one other project associated with this uh, particular um, trilogy I guess you have around uh, the Hellship project. This um, is the music this element. This is the music element. I would like to play something... Um, as we finish up this interview, uh, which is uh, one of the tracks from uh, the Hellship Project. Um, it's a track by Thomas Veach of uh, the Which same one are you playing? Name. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's my son. And Rose Hampton, um, Lowlands Away. Is uh, Can you talk a little bit about yeah, this? Introduce this before you play this track. It's a beautiful old Scots Celtic. Uh, Tom, who's a cellist, has done the music for the show, and there's an album for it as well, which is a beautiful album of, of music. I know Triple has been playing a little bit of it, which is lovely. But he's um, arranged and composed some songs with our wonderful singer Rose Hampton, who's a girl who has the voice of an angel up in the Yarra Valley there, where we all come from. And uh, this is one of the tracks. This is uh, one of the most prettiest tracks of these beautiful um, Celtic songs and sea songs that uh, Tom's curated for the album of Hellship. And, you, and it's all on the hell, uh, um, hellshiptaikonderoga.com is our website. We can get tickets to the show and all sorts of things and even a book if you want me to sign it for you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael Veach. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for it. And that's also all we've got time for on the show. Um, so I'm going to take you out with Lowlands Away by Thomas Veach and Rose Hampton. I'd like like to thank my guest, uh, um, 
obviously the wonderful Michael Veach who we've just <laughs> been speaking with. Uh, thank you so much, Michael Veach, Thanks, for joining Mel. us. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Moreno Giovannoni uh, who came in to discuss his book, The Fireflies of Autumn. You've been listening to Backstory on 3RRR and as promised, we're going to take you out with the lovely Lowlands Away by Thomas Veach and Rose Hampton. I dreamt a dream the other night. Lowlands, lowlands away, my John. I dreamed a dream. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.